Uh, you know, if you want to get your diploma in Christianity, you're going to have to know, is it ever right to fight? A few times recently, we've talked about the servant of the Lord never quarreling. Well, sometimes there are things that you are going to have to fight about, and these are extraordinary situations. So we want to handle the extraordinary situations. This is a terrible picture. <clears throat> Next to it is a quote from John Wayne in the Shootist movie. He says, I won't be wronged. I won't be insulted. I won't be laid a hand on. I don't do these things to other people. And I require the same from them. The code of the West. Which is all okay if you're teaching your little boys, you know, don't wrong people. Don't insult them and don't put your hands on them. It's very good. Uh, you wouldn't want people to do this to you and so you shouldn't do it to them. It's very good. But when you have it in a code of the West sort of tone, it's like, you better not or I'm going to make you pay. And Christians cannot do that. So the question is, is it ever right for us to fight? Is it ever right for us to fight? And of course, it is sometimes right for us to fight. So we're going to talk about Christians in self-defense. We're going to talk about Christians in the military and police departments. We're going to talk about Christians in courtrooms and political arenas. And last of all, we're going to talk about Christians in times of revolution. Is it ever right to fight? And these are hard questions. We have to deal with these things honestly. So here we go. Do you know that Jesus actually all by himself endorsed self-defense? So, for example, Matthew 24, 43 says, if the master of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would not have allowed his house to be broken up. You see, that's self-defense. Somebody's going to try to come in my house, take my stuff, hurt my family. If I know that's going to happen, if I hear the guy, I'm going to do something about it. Jesus just took for granted that we would defend our homes and our loved ones. Same idea in Matthew 12:29. How can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will spoil his goods? Once again, Jesus takes for granted, well, you're not going to let somebody just waltz in there and take away all your stuff and hurt your loved ones. The only way that's ever going to happen is if you tie the guy up so that he doesn't keep you from doing it. And then you can take his stuff and hurt his loved ones. But you're going to have to tie him up first. And so Jesus, again, is endorsing self-defense with that sort of a statement. In Luke 22, this is right before Jesus goes into the garden uh, in which he will be arrested and then crucified the next day, right? So he's talking to his disciples and he tells his disciples here, let him who has no sword sell his garment and buy one. Wow, that's quite a thing to say, right? You probably are going to need a sword. In our day, that would be like... Um, Anybody who doesn't have a handgun, you probably need to sell something and buy one. I mean, that's what this is saying. And this is a sword. You know, it's, it's not useful for buttering your bread or anything. It's a weapon. Um, so let him who has no sword sell his garment and buy one. And in verse 38, the disciples said, Lord, see, here are two swords. We have two swords. He says, that's, that's enough. You know, we're not trying to arm a militia here to, to his good. And so we find that Jesus is recommending for his disciples to have a weapon. These are truly weapons. In John 18:22, we realize that Jesus himself protested when somebody was bullying him. In this case, this is his arrest and trial. 
And one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? And Jesus protested. He answers him back. And he says, If I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? So Jesus is saying, I'm not going to let you get away with that without saying something. Why did you hit me? If I've lied, okay. If I have said something that was untrue, fine. But why did you do that? We're in... We're in an honest court of integrity here, and you can't pretend to be honest and do that. So Jesus is protesting. The same kind of thing happens with Paul in Acts 23, verse 2. Paul has been arrested, and the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You know, you're painted over rottenness is what you are. For do you sit to judge me after the law and then command me to be struck on the face contrary to the law? You're supposed to be acting in integrity. So Paul's not letting him get away with uh, something that is unlawful. He is quarreling, you might say. He's standing up for his rights in a Jewish court of law. Notice, though, in Matthew 5.39, how different this sounds. Jesus says, Do not resist evil. Oh, well, that's weird because he just said, you know, why are you? Jesus is the one who said, why did you hit me if I told the truth? He's resisting evil. And here he says, but don't resist evil. So which is it? He said, if you're going to steal from a strong man, you're going to have to tie him up first or you're not going to steal his stuff. If the man of the house knew when the thief was coming, he wouldn't allow his house to be broken into. You're going to have to take care of that somehow because nobody's going to stand by and let that happen and here jesus is saying yeah just stand by and let it happen so what's the problem i say to you do not resist evil but whoever shall strike you on your right cheek turn to him the other also well even jesus didn't do that he didn't say oh yeah you hit me now why don't you hit me again he said what are you doing how is this supposed to be an honest court of inquiry if you hit me like that and paul did the same thing so paul and jesus are not doing this And you think, well, why does the Bible seem to contradict itself in these matters? And the answer is that Matthew 5, the whole Sermon on the Mount, is in the context of Jesus' return to earth, at which time he will be here as the boss of the world, with deputies scattered all over the world, and you don't have to take matters into your own hands. If a bully, a thief, a ruffian comes and tries to do something to you, You just ignore it and go tell the authorities and King Jesus is going to take care of it. And Jesus is setting up his audience for the prospect of his return when he's the boss of the world and you don't have to take matters into your own hands. Until he returns, until the time that we call the millennium, come as close to this as possible, turning the other cheek, looking the other way, forgiving. Well, that's Christians in self-defense. Jesus has a theology of self-defense, and so can we. Now let's talk about Christians in the military and the police departments. We learn right away from Romans 13 that the king uh, has authority to have a weapon. So let every soul be submissive to the higher authorities, for there is no authority but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whoever therefore resists the authority... Resist the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves condemnation. So, 
Submission, obedience to the authorities. That's what this is all about. These are government officers, government officials. And we are told here in Romans 13 to be obedient to them. Now, that is also going to include being conscripted, uh, drafted into the military sometimes. If the king sends you a draft notice, you don't dodge it. You obey the draft notice. That's what it means to be submissive to the higher authorities. Uh, There is the possibility perhaps not so much now in America, but in other times and places, of martial law. And martial law is when the military takes charge of the area and the commanding officer of that area is the boss. He's the final authority in that area. That happens from time to time in wartime and just after wartime and when there are riots and civil unrest. And the king is the boss. And the Bible says you have to obey the guy. Uh, And that might include things that are unpleasant. Titus 3.1 has the same idea. Remind them to be submissive to princes and authorities and to obey them. 1 Peter 2.13 is the same thing. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. These are human laws and regulations and you have to submit to them. Uh, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Whether it be to the king, you know, the great boss, or unto governors, the lesser officers of the political system, as unto them that are sent by him. So here we're learning that once the government commissions an individual to act as an officer, then that person is the government. And you're not just obeying the king, but also the people who are commissioned by the king in other offices of the political system. And that brings us back to Romans 13. That text continues by saying, Will you not then be afraid of the authority? Do that which is good, and you shall have praise from the same governmental authority for he is the servant of God to you for good but if you do that which is evil do be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain he is the servant of God a revenger to execute wrath on him that does evil now what's so interesting about that is at the time this is written we have Nero Caesar as the leader of the Roman Empire and he was a very very bad person And this text is telling us that uh, even Nero, as rotten as he was, is better than no government at all. And you should remember that. Any government is better than no government. And this text says, and by the way, Paul, who's writing this about Caesar and his underlings, Paul is going to be executed by this Caesar in a few years. So he knows whereof he speaks when he says you have to obey even corrupt government. You have to obey as Christians. It's what we do. And it says here, he does not bear the sword in vain. He's the servant of God. As bad as Nero was, Nero was still the servant of God, accomplishing God's purpose. And Nero had a sword. But of course, Nero didn't always do his own dirty work. He had armies of people who had the sword. And once again, it brings us back to obeying not only the king as supreme, but also the governors as those who are sent by the king. And now we also have the idea of a weapon. Once the king has appointed you a deputy, that is an officer of the law, perhaps in a military role or a policing role, once you have been appointed by the king as his helper, as his officer, as his deputy, then you also can swing the sword righteously. 
And so we know that the military and police departments are part of that whole thing in Romans 13. In Luke 3.14, we have John the Baptist preaching and the soldiers come to John the Baptist and the soldiers ask him, well, what shall we do? What about us? And John the Baptist said to them, do not do violence. And by that, he's talking about not in wartime, but around his own people, because the soldiers were bullies in those days. And he's saying, don't scare people, don't intimidate people and don't rough people up. So what should we do? And he says, do not do violence to any man and be content with your wages. What John the Baptist does not tell them is that they have to quit the army. They're soldiers. And you would think, oh, he should have said, you need to resign. You need to get out of the military. But he doesn't do that. He says, don't be a bully and be content with your wages. In Acts 5.28, we have the Jewish government officials arresting the apostles and telling them to stop talking about the gospel. Stop telling people about the Lord Jesus. And they, they didn't do that. So the officials say to the apostles, did we not strictly command you that you should not teach in Jesus' name. And see, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered, we ought to obey God rather than men. Ah, so now we see the government is not the final authority. God is the final authority. And God is the higher authority. So if the lesser authority says I'm supposed to do something, and the higher authority says, no, you better not, then you have to listen to the higher authority. And that's what Peter and the apostles are saying. If the governments require us to do evil, we are not going to comply with the government in that situation. We would comply with the government in a thousand other situations, but not when the government wants us to do evil. We're not going to comply with that. And that means that we're not going to comply, not that we're going to get our weapons and start shooting the government. So, you know, Christian soldiers have been mentioned throughout church history. We have in Matthew 8 the example of the wonderful centurion whose faith Jesus complimented. Do you remember? In Acts 10 and 11, we have the story of Cornelius, who is a Roman soldier, centurion. Tertullian, about 200 A.D., he refers to Christians fighting side by side with other Roman soldiers. He said, in the fortresses and in the very camps, you know, military camps. And he says, we sail with you and we fight with you. You know, why are you hurting us? We're, we're, we're good citizens. In uh, 173 A.D., there's this famous battle where the soldiers of the Roman army are dying of thirst. And the Christians pray And rain comes, a a thunderstorm. And uh, they were referred to ever after as the thundering legion because a thunderstorm came and there was lots of rainwater to catch and drink and they survived. The pagans took credit for it and said that their gods answered their appeals and the Christians took credit for it and said their prayers were answered. Uh, We have an idea that the Christians have it right. We found gravestones in the old Roman Empire that describe Christians who have died in that particular burial plot who are soldiers. We have the Roman fortress at Megiddo that housed uh, a church for some time. And it's dated to the time of the New Testament, particularly the book of Revelation. And there's an inscription on the floor that says this is dedicated to God, Jesus Christ. 
So a fortress, you know, a place where soldiers are dedicated to God. Uh, known Christian soldiers include Julius the Veteran, Maximilian, Marinus, Marcellus, Decius, and Tibesius. Uh And then there's the great story of the four martyrs of Sebast. You know, the 40 brave soldiers for Jesus marched out on the ice because they wouldn't offer incense for the emperor. And uh, so they just they just froze to death on the ice. One guy chickened out uh, and gave up his faith, renounced Jesus and burned incense. And the jailer was so moved by the bravery of the other 39 that he ran back out onto the ice and he joined them and he froze to death too. So we're right back to 40 brave soldiers for Jesus. That's a famous story. And once again, it's all about Christian soldiers. So we know that Christians can serve with integrity in the military and in police departments because God has ordained the king to have the sword for good reasons. And if the king makes you his deputy, you are a government officer and now you have the sword. So we know that Christian military and Christian police uh, work is honorable. So about Christians in the courtrooms, in the political arenas, are we allowed to fight it out in court? Are we allowed to fight it out in the halls of Congress? What about that? Well, all right, let's start with fighting with brothers and sisters in the circuit court, not criminal court, circuit court, Uh, not circuit court, uh, civil court is what I mean. Uh, Dare any of you, says the Apostle Paul, do you dare, having a matter against another brother, go to law before the unbelievers and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints should judge the world? I mean, we're going to judge the whole world someday. Surely we can handle these little differences that come up between us. And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we will judge angels someday? Which is quite a thing to imagine, isn't it? We're going to judge the angels someday. So how much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I mean, most of the things Christians fight about, I think there has never been a church fight that I've ever seen in my very long life, uh, which could not have been honestly settled by a 12-year-old girl. I think we could take a 12-year-old honest girl and say, now listen here, this guy over here, he thinks that you can't come to church unless you have a suit jacket and tie. Now, this guy over here says you don't need one. So, 12-year-old girl, the whole church is depending on you. What do you say? And I imagine they'd come up with an, uh, an equitable solution. So, Paul says, we're going to judge the angels someday. So, is it possible that we're not able to handle these things? Set them in the church who are least esteemed. Like, oh, she's just a 12-year-old girl. What does she know? Well, let them judge. But don't go to court with one another for crying out loud. What a terrible idea. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise person among you? No, not one who should be able to judge between his brothers. But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law with one another. What are you doing? You're going to these Roman civil courts and suing each other. You can't do that. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather allow yourselves to be defrauded? No, you do the wrong and you're doing the defrauding and you're doing it to your brothers. Don't do that. I so admired my father-in-law when he was 40-something. He invested 
in a Christian phone directory. And uh, his church was keen on it. You know, it's kind of a big deal. And he was in a bad way financially. He didn't have a lot of money to invest, but it was a, it was a Christian business opportunity. And, and his Christian friends were all doing it. And some of them had some substantial wealth. And so I don't know if he should have done this, but he took a second mortgage out on his house. And he didn't have a lot of money. And he invested in this publication. And the publication never even went to print. It could have. But the other investors got cold feet or something and pulled the plug on it. Uh, they weren't going to make as much money as they wanted. Pulled the plug on it. And it never even had an opportunity to make anybody any money. Well, that was devastating to my father-in-law. He's only 40-something, and all of his money is tied up in this. And you can imagine, what if your mortgage payment was then doubled because you took a second out on your house? I mean, this is very, very painful at a time when he didn't have much money. And the fellows who were with him just declared bankruptcy and continued driving their luxury cars. But he was in a really bad way. And he went to the church and said, you know, one of these guys is an elder at your church. And he said, well, there's nothing we can do about it. And so he's just out the money. And sometimes people said, you should sue the trash out of them. They nope. I read in the Bible that Christians don't go to court with Christians in civil matters. And I admired him for that. That was beautiful. And I hope that's what you all would do. So is there a time to fight? Yeah, there's a time to fight. But it wouldn't be with brothers in civil court. No way. Not that time. Other times, yes, you can stand and insist on your rights. That's what happened in Acts 16. Uh, Paul and Silas led this demon-possessed girl to the Lord. And she used to tell fortunes. And when she became a Christian, she couldn't tell fortunes anymore. She lost her demon. And uh, she had a boss. The boss took Paul and Silas to court and said, this guy has ruined our cash cow, our source of income. uh, And you need to do something about it. So they threw Paul and Silas in jail. uh, Midnight, singing, earthquake, doors pop open. Jailer becomes a Christian takes Paul and Silas to his house. The whole family becomes saved. And this is what happens next morning. Keeper of the prison said, Well, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned. You know, this is an illegal trial. The whole thing was a fiasco, kangaroo court. They have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans. You can't treat a Roman citizen like that, and have cast us into prison, and now they thrust us out privately? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and lead us out with an apology. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and the magistrates feared, like, that's right, they were Romans, we shouldn't have done this. The magistrates, they feared, and when they heard that they were Romans, you know, that was a big problem. You can't treat Roman citizens like that. And they came and pleaded with them. And brought them out. And they went out of the prison. So Paul says, no, we're not going to secret off into the uh, night here. Tell them to come and escort us like we are people with dignity. And that's the way it turned out. The same thing happened in Acts 22. Paul was arrested because there was a riot in Jerusalem. And it wasn't his fault that the people were rioting. Um, They were mad at him for preaching the gospel. And so they were going to cause a big row. And... um, 
So they grab Paul and escort him to a safe place, and now they're going to interrogate him. So the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle, and they ordered that he should be examined under scourging. That'd be like waterboarding, right? Uh, examined under scourging, that he might know why they cried, why the people were crying so loudly and viciously against Paul. And as they bound him with ties, Paul said to the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? You can't treat people like that. I'm a Roman citizen. And when the centurion heard that, he went and he told the chief captain, saying, Take heed of what you do. This man is a Roman citizen. And then the chief captain came and said, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, Yes. And the chief captain answered, With a great sum of money, I obtained this freedom. He wasn't born free. He had to buy citizenship. And Paul said, well, I was born free. And then immediately they departed from him, which should have examined him, you know, with the scourge. And the chief captain also was afraid after he knew he was a Roman. Like, uh oh, we bound him. We were going to treat him badly. And he's a Roman citizen. So they fought. They stood for their rights. They insisted in a proper court. This is what your laws are. You can't treat a Roman citizen like this. They fought. They fought back. They insisted. So you now see Jesus did that once, right? Paul did it in the Jewish court, and Paul did it twice in Roman court situations. What about the political arenas? Let's take it out of courts. Let's talk about politics. Cal Thomas is well known during the whole rise of what we call the Christian right and, and the idea of the moral majority. He was very, very involved with that, and that began at about the time of our national bicentennial, uh, 1976. Anyway, he later said, I submit that religious political activism hasn't done much when the major issues that the so-called religious right began to address in 1979 have not been resolved. For all the energy Christians have put into politics, the return has been scant. Sometimes people say, oh, you have to get involved with politics. You have to fight, fight, fight. But Cal Thomas said, we did fight, fight, fight. And it really didn't accomplish anything. James Dobson, similarly, he said, do you recall the many times since 1980 when Congress blatantly ignored an avalanche of mail and phone calls from constituents? On dozens of occasions, our legislators received an outpouring of support for or against a particular bill. Another bill that threatened churches produced more than a million calls in two days, but to no avail. He said in his January 2013 newsletter, he said, now let me share my heart with you. I'm sure many of you are discouraged in the aftermath of the national elections, especially in view of the moral and spiritual issues that took such a beating on November 6th. Nearly everything I have stood for these past 35 years went down to defeat. So people say, we need to, we need to fight it out in the halls of Congress. We need to fight it out with politics. But that's not going to be helpful. I would recommend that you don't do that. I mean, it's okay to use words. It's okay to use your vote. But you'd be so careful. The truth is, we have plenty of spokespersons today. And we don't really need you. Uh, ben Shapiro is saying some good things. Jordan Peterson is saying some good things. Um, Larry Elder is saying some good things. Uh, Candace Owens is saying some good things. You don't need to add to that. You don't need to make everybody angry because you're also saying the same things. All you need to say for the most part when it comes to political things is, 
Oh, are you familiar with Candace Owens and Larry Elder? Uh, check them out. That's where I am. You don't need to make everybody mad at you. The servant of the Lord must not strive. There are exceptions to this. Like in court, you can insist on your rights. But just to raise a big stink in America, that's never going to be a good idea for Christians who must not quarrel. So here's what we have done as, you know, a church for decades. We've had the marches and the protests and the boycotts and talk radio and online posts. And we've been news hounds, you know, listening to every bit of news. And we've had nonviolent resistance and letter writing campaigns and large financial investments. We've given our money and large investments of volunteer hours. And how has that worked? Are we doing a lot better now? Pretty good. You know, really, the future is looking bright because we did all that. Like, no, it hasn't worked at all. You have to understand the world will always be evil. Always. Till Jesus comes back. Always. There's, there's no way we can sanitize the world. John 7, 7. The world hates me because the works of it are evil. The world is evil. The prince of this world. That's one of the names, titles of the devil. The prince of this world should be cast out. The prince of the world comes. I do not pray for the world. Jesus says, I'm not actually praying for the world to be sanitized. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world. The wisdom of this world is foolishness. Christ gave himself that he might deliver us from this present evil world. In time past, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, but you don't do that anymore. Demas has defected from the faith. He deconverted, having loved this present world. Pure religion is to keep a man unspotted from the world. Do you not know that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The whole world lies in wickedness. Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of, light, uh, pride of life, this is not of the Father, but is of the world. If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would have loved his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world is going to be condemned. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come, but evil men and seducers shall grow worse and worse. See, in the last days it gets worse, not better. We're not going to sanitize the world. You have to understand that. When you want to do all these political things, you're not going to sanitize the world. In Christianity, we have people who are called reconstructionists. Their idea is that we're going to impact the seven spheres of influence in America and in the world in order to Christianize the whole world. We're going to sanitize, Christianize the whole world. That's what they think. We have dominionists. They're a little less aggressive. Dominionists say that we're going to impact the seven spheres of influence in order to achieve dominion over the world. We'll be the bosses and there's going to be a lot of resistance, but uh, we've got the steering wheel and they don't. The cultural mandate advocates are not so different from us, really, and in some ways we are this, but their idea is to impact the seven spheres of influence in the world in order to bring about as much good as possible, which, of course, is okay in and of itself. But you will never sanitize the world. The operative term there is as much good as possible. And so the world cannot be sanitized. Yeah, you have to sometimes stand up and be strong in the courtrooms and in the political arenas. But there are limits to this. Christians in times of revolution. 
Again, from Romans 13, let every soul be subject unto the higher authorities. They that resist shall receive to themselves condemnation. You have to obey the law. You have to. Law and order. It's Bible. Titus 3.1. Be subject to the princes and authorities and obey them. The law of the land. 1 Peter 2.13. Submit yourself to every ordinance. You have to obey. It's what Christians do. And this obedience is the exact opposite of revolution. These are excerpts from the Declaration of Independence. We all imagine that that must be a very godly biblical document. Now, you've just seen what the Bible says, and you answer now. Does this sound like the Bible? When in the course of human events it becomes necessary necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands that have connected them with another as the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Did Nero come to power because he was voted in? He did not. And we realize in Romans 13, you have to obey a bad guy like Nero. He's a tyrant. So what are they talking about? It's necessary for us to have a declaration of independence because we don't like the government. And they say it's from nature's God that entitles them. No, actually, nature's God said you have to obey King George in England. So I say, well, I'm glad they didn't. But no, that would be ignorance. It is always right to obey the Lord. And just to give you an idea, you'll remember that we had a civil war here over slavery. England never did. They solved it like gentlemen. There didn't need to be a deadly civil war. If we had never had the Revolutionary War, we would never have had the Civil War, evidently. Well, nature's God entitles them. Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute a new government. We're going to throw off this king. It is their right to throw off such government. You never saw that in Scripture. And to provide new guards for their future security. We, therefore, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. You're going to appeal to God for this? He's the one who told you not to. Appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. Declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. That they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown. We're bailing out by force. Back off. That does not sound like Romans 13, does it? So you know what happens now? Because we cut our teeth on this language, right? So what happens now? 33% of Americans today think that violence is justified against the government. 33%. That's one third, right? 46% of Americans think future civil war is likely. 46% of Americans right now. 33% of young adults ages 18 to 30 think that A civil war should be expected in their lifetime. 31% of probable voters think that a civil war of some kind will occur in the next five years. That's almost one-third of the probable voters. 18% of Democrats think that violence is justified if Republicans win. 
And 13% of Republicans think that violence is justified against the other party if Democrats win. Well, of course, because that was the start of the United States, right? And there are more problems. Evangelicals have, in recent times, controlled about 20% of the vote, which is substantial, right? One-fifth of the power has been ours. American adults associated with evangelical churches at this moment, but it gets less every year, uh, is about 25% of American adults have some sort of association with an evangelical church. In 2016, not so long ago, right, as uh, people were doing the exit polls, they said, how do you identify? And they said, uh, we are white evangelicals. And 26% of the people who voted, you know, one-fourth of the people who voted in 2016 said we are white evangelicals. I mean, that is, that is a lot of political clout. And besides the ones who are professing to be white evangelicals, there's the influence that they have over others. It's, it's quite a lot of influence besides the ones who are directly Christians, you know. And white evangelical voters who voted Republican in 2016 were 79%. So almost 8 out of 10 white evangelicals voted Republican. So that's a lot of, a lot of Republican influence in our world. A lot of evangelical influence in our world. A lot. But here we have an example of how that's gone awry. This is a quote from Madison Cawthorn, who was uh, a representative in North Carolina in 2020 through 2022. This year, uh, he lost. But he's a homeschool Christian. And look what he says. And it sounds just like the Declaration of Independence, doesn't it? If our election systems continue to be rigged, then it's going to lead to one place, and that's bloodshed. There's nothing I would dread doing more than having to pick up arms against a fellow American. What? This is a homeschool Christian. That's very bad. Rachel Levy, Wall Street Journal, says several hundred private militia groups now exist around the country, generally made up of right-wing white men. So militia groups of right-wing, that would be Republican, white men, and I dread to imagine how many of them would claim to be Christians. Stephen Marsh is talking about how scary this is to people who look on, how scary we might be to people who look on. The right has a plan. You know, the right, I guess that's me, right? The right has a plan, violence and solidarity with treasonous far-right factions. Most of the American right have abandoned faith in government as such. True. Uh, Their politics is increasingly the politics of the gun. False. We should be prepared for a constant drumbeat of self-directed terrorism from the right. False, but it does sound like the Declaration of Independence, right? Chauncey DeVega, mainstream media journalist, says, The coup continues as Republicans and their agents are attacking democracy in dozens of states. Uh, Saying, you know, the elections are rigged and that sort of thing. Republican spokespersons continue to threaten and incite political violence. Not us who are going to follow the Lord, though, right? We would never do that. They have us all wrong, right? Right? (laughs) Some of these right-wing militias are going to want to capture territory in certain parts of the country and hold it. If the right-wing extremists are not able to coordinate their attacks, then we're just going to see a series of consistent attacks every few weeks. And they use Northern Ireland as an example of that. 
What we really want here is a different paradigm. Remember the story of Sergeant York in World War I. All by himself, he charged a machine gun nest that was uphill, and he was a marksman. And bullets are whizzing all around him, and his men were going to die, and he couldn't let that happen. So he charged the machine gun nest all by himself. And he eventually got the machine gun nest and he took all by himself well over 100 prisoners. One guy holding 100 prisoners all by himself and walking them down the mountain. Unbelievable. And he was a Christian and he was even a pacifist. He didn't even want to be in the war. But he thought he had to. You know, biblically, the king needed him and so he carried a weapon. And he says, all the time, I kept yelling at them while he's charging the machine gun nest and, you know, a spray of bullets all around him. I kept yelling at them to come down. I didn't want to kill. You know, it's not like we really like this stuff. We're not bad people. We hate violence. We're not wanting to do this. And, of course, he got the Medal of Valor. And you see, as an old man in that picture at the top, a young boy looking at his Medal of Valor. And he's a grandpa. He's a nice man. He didn't want to do this. He's saying that Christian men have a muscular Christianity. And we are prepared. We're prepared in integrity to practice compassionate self-defense. We have no desire to hurt anybody. But if you're going to break into our houses and take our stuff and hurt our loved ones, you're going to have to tie us up first. Muscular Christianity allows us to function as officers of the government, military and police. And to use weapons in that capacity. But if our bosses happen to be North Koreans or Chinese or jihadis and they say, I want you to go on this mission, then we as Christian soldiers would say, well, we're not going to do that. We ought to obey God rather than men. And we're not doing that. And whatever happens. But we're not going to attack them. We're not going to overthrow the government, right? And we are allowed, we are in integrity, allowed by God to insist verbally on our rights as they exist in the courtrooms and political arenas. All of that is good. But we would not file civil suits against fellow Christians, right? We wouldn't do that. So the question is, is it ever right to fight? Like, Yeah, it is. It is. But look well to your going, because there are a lot of Christians who don't seem to have these ideas in mind anymore. And we don't want that to be our case.